Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 9, The Birds of Paradise. Okay guys, this is the episode we've been waiting for. No mucking around, I'm so serious about this subject, we're not even going to have jokes this time. Wait, what? Maybe like one or two, right? No! Because today, we're talking about the birds of paradise. The single most beautiful, bizarre, batshit crazy family of birds there is. And in one sense, this is the perfect subject for an audio story. Because to appreciate these birds, you have to see them, and that just isn't gonna happen here. Not only are these birds beautiful, they are, they have stunningly vivid colours and iridescent plumes that rival the most ostentatious peacock or sparkling hummingbird, but they also have utterly unique features, feathers, that have evolved in peculiar ways, they have extended plumes, tails longer than the rest of their body, crests, capes that hang from their neck, epaulets that stick out from their shoulders, structures no other birds have. And they use those feathers to morph into shapes so otherworldly as to defy description. I'm talking about birds that can look like an alien smiley face, birds that can look like a comet flying through the night sky, birds with eyebrows that put John Howard to shame, birds that wear a ballerina's tutu. Have you ever seen a bird do that? No, because there are no other birds like them. I'm getting very worked up. They have captured the imagination of naturalists for hundreds of years. And now I'm too calm. But it has only been in recent decades that we have gained an understanding for how they use their plumes and why they even have them to begin with. In part, this is because these birds are elusive. They primarily live in the remote cloud forests of New Guinea. Getting to where they are straight up sucks. It's a bugger out of the way, it's mountainous, it's tropical, it's wet, it's humid, it is inconvenient. But never mind about that, because you get to listen to this story from the comfort of your own home. So let's start with that name, the Birds of Paradise. Where does that come from? Are they named after the flower? No, the flower is named after them. To get the whole story, we're going to have to go back to the year 1519, and Ferdinand Magellan's attempt to sail around the world. Magellan, of course, died along the way, but in 1522, when the remaining ship's ship returned to Spain, they brought with them the dried skin of a remarkable bird. The creature had no wings, no feet, but it did have these extraordinary golden plumes extending from its flanks. They were fine, filamentous feathers which sprung forth like a golden fan. Today, we know that bird as the greater bird of paradise, Paradisia apoda. But at the time, it was a mystery. When Magellan arrived in the Malaluke Islands, fact check, Magellan was already dead, when his surviving crew arrived in the Malaluke Islands, the local tribespeople presented them with this skin. The sailors were stunned. What was this creature that looked like a bird, 
that had no feet nor wings. Here, though, was a problem. The Greater Bird of Paradise does not live on the Malaku Islands. The locals had never seen a living one. The skin had been traded to them through a chain of clans leading back to New Guinea. They had no way of knowing that the New Guinea locals had a tradition of removing the wings and feet to better display the ornamental plumes. Not knowing the truth, the tribespeople spun a wild tale. They said the birds came from heaven, that they floated with celestial beings high above the earth, and they survived by drinking dew from clouds. The birds had no wings or feet because in heaven they had no need for them because they never touched the ground. The only times humans could glimpse them is when they died and fell to earth. The story stuck. And so this bird, and by extension all of its close relatives, became known as the birds of paradise. Still today, there is a hint to this origin in the greater bird of paradise's scientific name, Paradisia apoda, the bird of paradise without feet. In a way, this false start was fitting, because for hundreds of years, naturalists would continue to get these birds wrong over and over again. But their enthusiasm never waned. As word of these extraordinary birds spread throughout Europe, it sparked something of a mania during the 19th century. People became obsessed with being the first to describe some new remarkable, hitherto unknown bird. But, as mentioned, New Guinea is a bugger out of the way, and expeditions didn't come cheap. To fund them, naturalists turned to royal patrons, promising that if they found anything special, they would name it after them. You can say what you want about naturalists, but they are nothing if not honest folk. They stayed true to their word, And as a result today, there are all sorts of European royalty flip-flapping their way around New Guinea. There is Princess Stephanie's Astrapia, Queen Carola's Perotia, the King of Saxony Bird of Paradise, and Queen Victoria's Rifle Bird, just to name a few. How appropriate it is to have a European monarch's name attached to a New Guinea bird is a story for another time. But nevertheless, that is where many of the birds' names come from. But maybe we should clear up a possible misconception here. Those naturalists who pleaded their case to their royal patrons didn't go to New Guinea themselves. Well, Alfred Russell Wallace did, but he was filthy poor. No, 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 no. New Guinea is far too inconvenient. Instead, They dispatched people on their behalf, who then sent the birds back. And by sent the birds back, I mean, of course, they sent back their dead remains. Now, you can learn a lot from looking at a dead bird, but the birds of paradise stumped our 19th century naturalists. As mentioned before, they have features that other birds just don't. Take, for example, the black sicklebill. This large, lean, jet-black bird had a long, tapering tail with a streak of brilliant electric blue iridescent plumes running down its side. No problem there. But in addition to this, it had a pair of epaulets, feathers that sprouted from, mm, say, about where its shoulders would be, almost like an extra set of wings. How did the bird hold these plumes? What function did they serve? 
the dead bird's body held no answers. Our naturalists took their best stab at depicting the bird with how they thought it would appear in life, with its feathers flared out, almost like an extra set of wings. But in life, the bird never holds its feathers in this way. But to be fair to our old-timey naturalists, what it does do with its feathers is so unexpected that they could have never guessed their true nature in a million years. The black sicklebill pulls these feathers back and cups them over its head, creating a kind of hood. It then turns itself side-on and takes on the appearance of something akin to a black comet. It only does this during its courtship display when wooing a potential mate. The female sicklebill looks nothing like the male. She's a plain brown bird. During the display, if she is well pleased with his comet impersonation, she will fly over for a closer inspection. Here, he will loom up, hood still cupped over his head, and sway over her like a cobra. The sicklebill is a morphing bird, using its feathers to radically change its appearance. We'll come back to this, but the point I want to make is no one had ever seen this display until the end of the 20th century. Until then, we had no clue what these feathers did. This is what I mean when I say these birds were shrouded in mystery. For another example, we can look at the 12-wired bird of paradise. Just like the sicklebill, it confounded people when it first arrived in Europe. These birds have a jet black head and breast, but a knock-your-eyeballs-out, brilliant, bright, lemon-yellow rear end. The most remarkable feature, though, as the name suggests, are the 12 wire-like feathers that appear to form its tail. More unusual is the fact that they are bent backwards. The first people to see the dried remains of the bird thought its tail had been crushed during the shipping process, damaged because of bad packaging. But no, this is exactly how they appear in life. More confounding still, these wires aren't even its tail feathers. Rather, they spring from the bird's side, run down the length of its body hidden underneath its yellow flank feathers before they appear where the tail should be before making a 180-degree turn and heading back up the other way. Again, for over a hundred years, the true nature of the quills remained a mystery. Some speculated that they even hung upside down from them. But the person who finally solved the mystery was none other than the voice of nature himself, Sir David Attenborough. In the 1990s, his team was the first to film the bird's mating display. The male sets up a position on a long bare branch, extending out of the forest canopy. A female will come and join him, and it's now that the game begins. The two birds chase each other up and down the branch, and the male, when above the female, will swish his tail wires back and forth across her face. Apparently, the female prefers to be wooed via the tactile sensation of tail feathers flicking her in the face. I mean, don't judge, everybody's got their kink. Indeed, what we find is that everything that makes these birds remarkable always comes back to their mating displays. But you know what, I get it. I've only mentioned two birds and things are already getting crazy. Let's just take a step back and try to survey the big picture. How many birds are in this family? Currently, there are 42 recognised species in the Bird of Paradise family. Now, I have to use the words currently and recognised because 
It's complicated, it's always complicated, but we don't have time to get into that, so we'll just say there are 42 birds of paradise and leave it at that. The next question is, where do they fit in the broader family tree of birds? Who are the closest relatives of these most colourful and extravagant fowl? Well, the answer may surprise you, but they belong to the corvid superfamily, which means their closest relatives are the very plain, very drab, very dark crows and ravens. If you were to take a look at any random collection of males, you would wonder how that's even possible. Red, yellow, blue, capes, crests, tails, iridescent metallic plumes galore, you name it, they got it. I mean, looking at the males alone, you would wonder how they're even part of the same family. Superficially, at least, the males bear no resemblance to each other. They range in size from something like a sparrow to a raven. Some have incredibly long tails, others have crests, some have breastplates, some have long curved sickle-shaped bills, others have only tiny stubs. How can any of these birds be related to each other, let alone a crow? But if we only look at the males, we would make a mistake because we would have ignored half of all the birds. If we turn our attention to the females, we can begin to see how these birds are related, because the females are all remarkably similar. Most of them have what is called cryptic coloration, a kind of mottled brown and grey that is great for camouflage and staying hidden in the jungle. What the females reveal is that under all that fancy ornamentation, at their core, these birds aren't that different from each other. What we are seeing is our old friend speciation, where birds from a single common ancestor will evolve into a variety of different forms. However, in this case, it has been runaway sexual selection, as opposed to the birds evolving to take advantage of different niches, niches to avoid competition over resources. I'll have more to say on that later. Right now, we're getting off track. We can see that the common ancestor of the birds of paradise was a crow-like bird, because there is one often overlooked member of the family, the paradise crow. And they're overlooked because in a family of flashy extroverts, they're the black sheep keeping to themselves in the corner, and then piecing out of the family reunion without saying goodbye. And there isn't a lot to say about them, other than the fact that they're a black, crow-like bird. But they provide the evidence for where the rest of the family came from. Okay, so we can start to get a handle on these birds here. Some millions of years ago, a rather crow-like bird found its way to New Guinea and its surrounding islands. This is exactly like our finches, tanagas, on the Galapagos, and our finches, actual finches, on Hawaii, that became the honey creepers that we met a couple of episodes ago. Go back and listen if you haven't already. But why did the paradise crow stay crow-like? And why did all the others become so extravagantly ornamented as to make a peacock blush? Well, on the Galapagos and Hawaii Islands, our birds evolved in different directions to monopolize different food resources. In those cases, we can look at the birds and understand that the different features they have assist them in finding their meal of choice. Slender bills for sipping nectar, heavy-set bills for cracking seeds, or hook-shaped bills for pulling up bark. But 
we can't do that with the birds of paradise. Their plumes don't seem to serve any function. If anything, they're a hindrance. They're big, clunky, they get in the way. They can even make it harder to fly. What we're seeing isn't evolution via natural selection. What we're seeing is evolution via sexual selection. These plumes may not help a bird find food or evade a predator, but they do help them find a mate. In every example, these birds became spectacular to be more appealing to the females. Not only are they staggeringly beautiful, but their elaborate mating rituals are unlike any other bird. So, let's talk about those rituals. Famed Bird of Paradise expert Edwin Scholes said, When it comes to mating displays, you could split these birds into two groups. There are the shape shifters and color shakers. Let's begin with the color shakers and the bird that kicked us off, the greater bird of paradise. It's one of several closely related birds, and they all have a similar ritual. The males gather together high in the canopy. This gathering is called a lek, L-E-K. Their ritual has very carefully choreographed moves, which must be repeated precisely every time. To begin their courtship display, they open their wings and throw back their golden plumes, creating a cascading fan. It's almost as if a golden fire is erupting from their back. When a female arrives to inspect the goods, the males will gallop up and down their branch. He then turns his back on the female and presents his fountain of fans for her inspection. If she likes what she sees, the male will start backing up. He will then turn and begin buffeting her with his wings, pecking the back of her head while making a beeping noise. It can look a bit violent, but the female must be into it because if it goes well, mating will then occur. Curiously, almost every female that visits the group of displaying males will mate with the same male. To the untrained human eye, it is impossible for us to pinpoint what exactly it is that the females are looking for and how they can all, almost without fail, settle on the same male. What does he have that the others don't? We have no idea, but through some subtle combination of his plumes, his display, and maybe even the position he holds in the tree relative to the other males, something sets him apart as the alpha that all the ladies want as their baby daddy. Why females find this specific display appealing is largely arbitrary. It just so happens that that's what female greater birds of paradise find sexy. I mean, who am I to judge? We know it's arbitrary because the other species in the family have completely different displays. Take, for example, the closely related bluebird of paradise. This bird is aptly named. It has a velvet black head with wings a lovely shade of cyan blue. Gosma russet feathers protrude from under its wings and it has two long tail streamers. To woo its mate, the male hangs upside down like a bat and pulsates its tail feathers while making a rather bizarre noise, which David Attenborough once described as being like a malfunctioning electronic apparatus. The King of Saxony, Bird of Paradise, makes a similar noise, only it tends to stay inverted the right way up. For its display, this small black and yellow bird will find a vine 
and begin rocking it up and down, back and forth, until it's bouncing like it's on a trampoline. Only then will it begin its display. Now, this bird has two of the most extraordinary crest feathers extending from right above its eyes. They're called headwires, and they're two highly modified feathers. So modified, they don't look like feathers at all. They're about twice the length of the bird, and stick out like two great antennas. The feathers' filaments have fused together, such that they look more like plastic tabs. And the bird has quite a bit of control over them. They can make them stand upright, flush them back over their wings, or even flare them out in front of their body. They can also control each one independently and can wave them around in astounding ways. And they do it all with muscles the equivalent of what we use to wiggle our eyebrows. In their day-to-day life, they keep these ridiculous feathers flushed back over their shoulders. But when it's courting time, they start whipping them around while bouncing on a vine and singing a song which is described as sounding like radio static. It's terribly romantic. Roll the audio! Yeah, that's the stuff. By now, what should be apparent is that while every bird is radically different, what unifies them is that they have each evolved their own way of being radically different for sexy times. Flank plumes, exaggerated tails, crests, iridescence, each member of the family has something modified to set them apart from other birds. And it isn't just the plumes that are important, but how they get combined in the ritualistic dance. This brings us to the shapeshifters, the most confounding of the birds. Because it wasn't until we could track them down and record their mating displays that the true nature of the feathers became apparent. Maybe the family with the most elaborate dance moves are the parotias. On first glance, these birds are more modestly dressed. They're decked out primarily in black, or but for a bib of iridescent plumes on their upper chest that shimmer blue, pinks, yellows and greens, depending on what angle you're looking at them from. Extending from behind each eye are two or three quills with tiny circular discs of feathers at their tip. All parotias also possess special decompressed feathers around their side, which during display, they can fluff out, giving them the appearance that they're wearing something like a ballerina's tutu. Now, each element, the headwires, the skirt, and the iridescent bib, all come together during the display to create a particular effect. Parotia's display on the forest floor. A male will maintain a court over the course of his life, an area of the forest he keeps clear of leaf litter. This is so that when he dances, he can be assured that he is well lit, there is nothing around to trip him up or block the view of his performance. They also choose court sites that have a horizontal branch running directly overhead. This is the viewing gallery, where the females will gather to watch his display. Each day, a male will remove anything that has dared to fall onto his court, any stray leaf is tossed away with a flick of his head, and he will then spend hours practicing his dance moves. Their display is complex and contains many steps. First, the male will move between the viewing branch above the court and the ground. 
greeting the females who have arrived and begging them to please be attentive to his display. He will then bow before bouncing across the court. He will then flutter his wings and sway on the spot. Each step in the display increases in complexity and builds towards the climax, the ballerina dance. This dance has several elements, but basically involves flaring out his feathers to display his tutu-like skirt. He waggles his head quills in front of him, moving back and forth beneath the viewing females before finally taking a dramatic pause. He waits for a moment, letting the tension build, and then he dips his head and flashes his iridescent throat feathers at the watching females. He then repeats the whole thing. Now, the ballerina dance is the transformational part of the performance. But to understand the effect he's going for, we have to consider the transformation from the female's perspective watching from above. You see, calling it a ballerina dance is a bit misleading, because that's not what the females see. For them, when he flares out his skirt, he stops looking like a bird and more resembles a black oval. His headwise and a patch of iridescent feathers on his head help to trace out the edge of the oval while he dances. When he pauses to flash his throat feathers at the females, it makes for a brilliant contrast against his jet black body. The other transforming birds of paradise also favour turning into black ovals. Why a black oval is attractive, who can say? Maybe birds of paradise are extremely nihilistic and just like staring into a void. The sicklebills and the rifle birds do this in their own way. But the other most astounding transformation belongs to the superb bird of paradise. Unlike the parodias, these birds perform their courtship display on a large branch or fallen log. The superb bird's transformation is sometimes described as a psychedelic smiley face. Again, audio, the perfect medium for this story. To pull off the effect, the bird uses three key features which don't look like much when it's just chilling out, but when brought together become something quite stunning. First, again this bird is primarily jet black, but has a blue iridescent delta-shaped breast shield. This is easily its most striking feature. Second, they have a black cape that extends from the nape of their neck. And third, they have a matching patch of blue iridescent feathers on the crown of their head. When a female visits the male's display site, he brings these three elements together in an unexpected way. He begins by pushing forward the breast shield so it extends out to form what will be the mouth of the smiley face. Next, he takes the cape feathers and rolls them up over his head such that they frame the shield and create that black oval shape. He then lifts his bill so that from the female's perspective it bisects his crown feathers, creating the appearance of two distinct blue spots which when paired with the lower shield and framed cape give the impression of flashing eyes with a mouth on a black face. It's astounding, and again, I know I'm not doing it credit, but believe me, it's amazing. Now, creating his smiley face is just the beginning of the display. Once the female comes down to inspect the male, he will bounce vigorously around her, 
being careful to keep her directly in front of him so as to maintain the visual illusion. After all, the last thing he wants to look like is a bird. As he bounces, he also emits a loud cracking noise. Roll the audio! The most remarkable thing, though, is this noise is not vocal, but is rather produced by rubbing his wings together. Many birds of paradise make other non-vocal noises with their wings. Rifle birds make a dramatic swooshing noise. And the sickle bill sounds like a distant machine gun. Of course, more normal vocalizations also play an important role in the mating display. Rifle birds have a very pure whoop note. And again, the sickle bill has a zap gun sound effect. These calls are used as an advertisement to the females. They're designed to travel a long distance in the jungle so that the females know where they are. But the most remarkable call of all belongs to the curl-crested manicode. It kinda sounds like a UFO landing or something. The manicode is one of the plainer clothed birds of paradise. It looks a lot more raven-like but this call must serve some role in mate selection. Ghostly, isn't it? It's only able to make this noise thanks to a specially modified trachea that runs the length of its body, and the females don't have them. But again, we have to ask, why have the birds of paradise evolved in this wide array of odd ways? To answer that question, we can think about their breeding practices. As we have seen, in every bird, the primary purpose of their plumes is to entice a female to mate. Once this happens, the female goes off on her own. She makes the nest alone, incubates the egg alone, and raises the chick alone. Meanwhile, the male's only mission is to mate with as many females as possible. They are polygamous birds. But if we consider our old friend the drab paradise crow, this isn't what they do. The paradise crow isn't polygamous like the other members of its family. Rather, the male and female form a pair bond and share the duty of raising their young. This answers the question we asked before. Why did the paradise crow stay plain? A male that works as part of a pair has no need for showy feathers. His value as a mate comes from the assistance he gives to rear the chicks. If a male isn't providing a service, then mate selection must be done on another metric. In those cases, appearance will always be the deciding factor, because, honestly, appearance is the best measure of a male's health and strength. The same is true with all birds, not just the birds of paradise. As a general rule of thumb, the greater the difference in appearance between the sexes, what people in the biz call sexual dimorphism, the lower the chance the male will play any role in rearing the young. 
This is true of ducks, game birds, hummingbirds, and pretty much any bird with a complex mating ritual, especially those that mate using a lek system. And just a reminder, that's where all the males gather together into one place to display at the same time, as the greater bird of paradise does. The reason males look so marvellous has nothing to do with feathers providing any survival advantage. It all arises through the process of sexual selection, driven entirely by female choice. Now, we might spend a lot of time focusing on the males, their brilliant plumes and wacky behaviour, but it is important to remember that it is the females who decide which male they will mate with, based on how desirable they find their traits. Quite literally, the females are the driving force which have created such gaudy males. Over many thousands of generations of mates being selected for the splendour of their plumes, these traits became exaggerated to the points where the feathers are a hindrance. Take, for example, the ribbon-tailed astrapia, this is a small black bird with two long pure white plumes that extend from behind it much like a ribbon. This tail is the longest of any bird as a ratio to its size. Its tail can grow to over a metre in length. On a bird that is only 30 centimetres in size, this is quite a sight, and this tail is nothing but cumbersome. Watching it in flight, the tail trails behind it like a banner being pulled by a small plane, providing nothing except drag and sapping the bird of energy. This trait arose not because it had any use, but because female astrapias, for one reason or another, happened to prefer males with long white tails. And so it goes with every bird of paradise. Whether it's a golden fountain, fancy dance moves, or a flailing crest set to the tune of radio static. As I said at the top of the pod, this is evolution through sexual selection, and it differs from natural selection. In natural selection, a trait is passed on if it is useful to the animal's survival. In sexual selection, a trait is passed on only if it assists in getting a mate. This is why the females have remained plain. Under this system, they have no need for extravagant plumes, and so they didn't evolve. But still, we are left with the question of why. Why is this the only family of birds where runaway sexual selection has occurred to such an extreme extent? To answer that question, we need only look to their home of New Guinea. On this island, these birds have few natural predators. Bright, conspicuous plumes that might otherwise betray a bird's location to a stalking carnivore, are not an issue, and so the males can get away with being as showy as all hell. Second, in their forest home, all year round, they are surrounded by energy-rich fruiting trees. A female raises her chick alone because she can. There is so much food available that getting enough for her child is something she can do without assistance, which usually isn't the case with other birds. Likewise, for the male, because finding food is so easy, they have surplus energy that can be put towards growing outrageous feathers. They can also dedicate an inordinate amount of time to learning and rehearsing the necessary dance moves to woo their admirers. Birds that are restricted by the need to find food for survival could never come up with such elaborate, 
energy-intensive and time-consuming displays. Only in the birds of paradise does every element come together to allow for the evolution of such splendid creatures. And now, like everyone who talks about these birds, I am obliged to make the joke that for the birds of paradise, the impenetrable jungle of New Guinea, which is so inhospitable to us, truly is a paradise for these birds. And woo-wee, that was a long one for us, and I've really only just skimmed over the subject. There is much more to say about the birds of paradise. And you know what that means? Next time, I'm going to be talking about the birds of paradise again. And I'm going to pick up a subject that is rarely discussed. You see, while there are 42 well-documented birds in the family, there are another... 20 or so mysterious birds, of which very little is known. They're sometimes called the Lost Birds of Paradise, and next time we're going to dive in, do a little detective work, and see what's behind this peculiar mystery of who those birds were and where they went. I hope to see you then. Is one bird, however often I release this podcast, not enough for you? Then I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to appear in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Did I even have a joke in this episode? I'll try to have a joke in the next one.